0: For us, one of the key things was when we started using Rotem um, is that the majority of the time when you run a Rotem in a bleeding obstetric patient, your response to what you find is to do nothing, um, to not initiate treatment based on that Rotem. Welcome to episode 25 of the Ops and Gynae Care Podcast. So, uh, the talk that I'm just going to run through, for some of you, um, a lot of this will be um, stuff that you've seen before, although there will be a few new things. Um, So this is a talk that I gave at the Adelaide Obstetric Intensive Care Symposium back in February, Um, and I thought I'd just talk a few things about that conference. So, that's the third time that they've run this conference, it runs every two years. Um, It's quite a unique conference, it's a really neat conference, in that it's... uh, Intensivists with an interest in obstetrics, uh, obstetricians, obstetric anaesthetists, and midwives, as well as obstetric physicians, um, all together for a two-day meeting to essentially talk about management of all sorts of high-risk obstetric situations. Um, It's held at the Adelaide Oval, which is um, a fantastic conference venue for uh, sort of small boutique conferences um, and a really sort of neat place to go. So. The conference will be held again in another two years' time if you're interested. It is a really neat meeting to uh, get along to, and just the people that you get to hear from all throughout Australia and New Zealand, plus the UK, was uh, quite fantastic. So I gave two talks at this meeting, and as is often the case at the meeting, you don't actually get to set the title of your talk, so this was the title that they gave me in terms of Coagulopathy Management in Obstetric Patients, Is There an Evidence-Based Practice? Um, so, uh, I'll run through a few things with that, and I just added a few different bits and pieces into this talk for today from some other stuff that we've done. And this clicker does not want to work, sorry. Um, two seconds. So, um, two quick conflicts of interest. Um, I have had speaker support from Tim before, um, just in terms of Rotem stuff, and I'm also on the National Advisory Board for CSL for fibrinogen concentrate. Um, So by way of introduction, um, it's incredibly uncommon to have a death from obstetric haemorrhage these days in the developed world, but in the developing world, uh, there's still a significant incidence of maternal mortality. Interestingly, uh, what's happening globally, uh, there's quite a contrast. In developed countries, so Australia, New Zealand, the UK, Canada, the US, our incidence of postpartum haemorrhage is going up dramatically. Um, although we're not seeing an increase in deaths at this point, whereas in the developed world, the actual incidence of postpartum hemorrhage is going down. Um, And that's another talk into itself in terms of why that's happening. Um, It's commonly taught, and most of our trainees will probably have this grilled into them, that uh, when you have an obstetric hemorrhage, there's a very high incidence of coagulopathy associated with that obstetric hemorrhage. Um, But whether that's true or not, and the implications of that coagulopathy have not actually been very well defined. I'm sorry, this clicker is just wanting to do all sorts of things to be annoying. Um, So trauma has its own distinct trauma-induced coagulopathy. um, But we don't have, at this point in time, a similar um, terminology for obstetric coagulopathy. So I'll introduce a few things from that point of view today. Um, There's two slides that I often put up for whenever I give talks on postpartum hemorrhage. The first one is this one, um, because people often ask why, as an anaesthetist, are you so interested in postpartum hemorrhage? Um, And the main answer to that is that our obstetricians like to give us lots of practice in dealing with it. Um, And so this is King Eddy local data here, basically showing um, 50% increase in our postpartum hemorrhage rate over the last decade here at this institution. Um, So we do have An increasing incidence of postpartum hemorrhage here. Um, But this is a slide which I think we should all be very proud of. This is our fresh uh, blood product use in adult patients um, over the last 15 years. Uh, And over that time period there was a significant increase in the number of patients we were caring for, so peaking around about 2010, uh, as well as from that point onwards we've dropped slightly in terms of numbers but a dramatic increase in our complexity yet a significant decrease in our red cell consumption over that time period, um, which uh, really um, highlights just the impact of a patient blood management system within the institution and what that can do to decrease red cell use. So I'm sorry, this clicker just does not want to do it. I'm just going to have to unclick things and do it all manually. I'm sorry. Um, So in terms of giving this particular talk at the conference, um, I thought I'd just put up... Seven slightly controversial statements, basically, and just try and talk through those. Uh, So the first one is we don't know why obstetric patients become coagulopathic. um, And I'm going to run through each of these individually, basically. Um, I'm going to try and highlight that obstetric coagulopathies are actually not very common. So we don't actually see coagulation changes in obstetric patients very commonly. Standard laboratory coagulation tests are outdated and shouldn't play a key role in our management. Fibrinogen is a key biomarker and transfusion target. Uh, probably one of the most controversial statements that are made. Fresh frozen plasma has no role in our early management of uh, postpartum haemorrhage and obstetric patients. Traditional fixed ratio transfusion regimens are outdated. Uh, and that tranexamic acid is safe and may, um, and I put the big emphasis on may, have some benefits. Okay, so to begin with. Um, So I am going to try and rush through these with just a couple of minutes on each particular topic. Um, The first thing is that we don't know why obstetric patients actually become coagulopathic. If you do a PubMed search and you look at trauma coagulopathy or trauma-induced coagulopathy, there's a few things that you'll see. You'll see uh, that there's been a huge uh, uptake in publications and research associated with trauma-induced coagulopathy over the last decade. Uh, And so there's a massive amount of research which is being done to try and understand why trauma patients become coagulopathic. And people often say obstetric patients are like trauma patients in terms of they get this similar coagulopathy. And we don't know that, and the factors that can lead to coagulopathy in obstetric patients are actually potentially quite different. Um, Sorry, this computer is just doing it again. Now we should be good. Okay, so do the same PubMed search on obstetric-induced coagulopathy, and you get very few articles, most of which aren't actually relevant to that particular topic. So if you put up a picture of what we think is currently going on with trauma-induced coagulopathy, and Ali is yawning, which is great when you see a slide like this because most people yawn because this just looks incredibly confusing in terms of what's actually going on in terms of the whole trauma-induced coagulopathy setting. Um, When you actually break it down, it's not as complex as what it actually seems. Um, Endothelial activation, increased activated protein C, endothelial glycocalyx layer shedding, platelet activation, um, some changes with your fibrinolytic pathway um, leading to your trauma-induced coagulopathy and potential coagulopathic bleeding. Now, there is essentially nothing like that out there in terms of a schema for obstetric induced coagulopathy. Um, And I think this next slide is potentially quite interesting for some of you in terms of how we actually think an obstetric induced coagulopathy might actually occur and hopefully this makes sense. Um, But this is my own schema in terms of how things potentially uh, come about with an obstetric induced coagulopathy and why we may see some of the changes in certain situations and not in other situations. Um, So firstly, obviously you have your obstetric insult, you deliver, you have an abruption, uh, you have a postpartum hemorrhage. Three key things that can happen which can lead to coagulopathic changes. The first is trophoblastic disruption. Um, And so that... Placental and myometrial interface is an activated coagulation system basically It's got significant procoagulant and anticoagulant factors involved When you have shedding of that layer, trauma to that layer There's all sorts of coagulation uh, impacting molecules that can be released Which on their own can lead to a coagulopathy Uh, If you bleed enough you can have depletion of coagulation factors through to ongoing hemorrhage And probably one of the most significant ones, I think, is our iatrogenic contribution that we make to patients uh, when they're bleeding and when they're having a postpartum hemorrhage. Um, And essentially, the impact of each of those ones will depend on the clinical situation that you're dealing with, um, leading to your obstetric-induced coagulopathy, essentially. And so they can all feed into into one another. But in some situations, it might be your iatrogenic contribution, Uh, or your ongoing bleeding, which is leading to your coagulopathy. In other situations, like an abruption, potentially you're more at risk of this trophoblastic issues and the coagulopathy developing from that. Um, So there's all sorts of things that can then happen from that, um, but essentially it can lead down to this obstetric-induced coagulopathy uh, in terms of what you see from that, um, which leads to ongoing depletion of your coagulation factors, essentially, uh, and ongoing bleeding. Now, I put DIC um, as just a little subsection in the bottom left corner here because DIC in obstetrics is actually incredibly rare. If you look at the formal definition of DIC, um, it's actually incredibly rare. So um, I don't tend to talk about DIC at all in terms of managing coagulopathies in obstetric patients um, because it's relatively difficult to diagnose um, but also quite rare. Um, And I think it's a lot easier for us just to look at our point-of-care testing and our guide-directed management. Um, so that was um, probably the biggest um, thing to try and get your head around in terms of uh, what we've, uh, what I was going to put up today. Um, Roger, did you have? You haven't seen that slide, sorry. Before, do you have any comments on, on uh, on the mechanisms from that point of view? Yeah. So I think the key things are that. Um, Probably a lot of the time we're over on your guys' right-hand side in terms of depletion of coagulation factors and iatrogenic contributions in terms of where we might see a coagulopathy um, and that uncommonly we have this trophoblastic disruption which leads to sometimes quite rapid uh, developments of coagulopathies. So um, I do make the statement that coagulopathy is uncommon in obstetric hemorrhage and I think um, for us one of the key things was when we started using rotin um, is that the majority of the time when you run a rotum in a bleeding obstetric patient, your response to what you find is to do nothing, um, to not initiate treatment based on that rotum. Um, and so it's, it is uncommon, but if you're looking for evidence to support that it's uncommon in the literature, um, you really have to do a little bit of digging uh, to find out things. I think this one is quite an interesting one, the obs 2 study, which was in the BJA Uh, last year, which was a a big UK-based study looking at the early administration of fibrinogen concentrate. And we won't focus too much on the results of that study, but look at some of their screening that they did, basically. So uh, their inclusion criteria was a PPH greater than 1,000 mLs, FibTem A5 of less than 16, so above our treatment trigger, but this is what they were looking at in terms of early administration of fibrinogen concentrate. They screened 663 women to randomise 57 into the study, basically. So of the 663 that they had with a PPH greater than 1,000 mils, only 57 of them actually had a FibTem A5 of less than 16. So a pretty low hit rate from that point of view. And if we look at uh, where we would potentially have a treatment trigger, which is even a little bit lower than that, um, only 28 of them had a FibTem of less than 13. Um So I think the OBS2 supports that uh, coagulopathies are actually uncommon in significant obstetric hemorrhage situations. Um, So about a 1 in 20 incidence in their study of a 15 less than 13. Um, There is some other stuff uh, which is out there which I'll come to as well. Um, But I think one of the key implications of that is that if you have empiric treatment in terms of coagulation factors in an obstetric hemorrhage situation, you are almost certainly over-treating the vast majority of the patients that you're dealing with. Um, Now, I know for us here at this institution, this is not as relevant, but for most of the community outside of here, uh, most of them have critical bleeding protocols which jump in with fresh rose and plasma is part of their first-round treatment, which is almost certainly not required. Um, and you can argue that uh, fibrinogen in the form of fibrinogen concentrate or cryoprecipitate is also not required in the majority of women when they present with their postpartum hemorrhage. Um, we talked about DIC quickly. Um, there's some other ways that you can look for what the incidence of coagulopathies are. This is um, really the first study. This was the French study by Chabot uh, that showed... Fibrinogen is a key biomarker, basically, and that came out in 2007 um, and led to us changing our transfusion triggers for fibrinogen. Um, But when you look at the traditional coagulation factor tests uh, in the study, even though they're statistically significant, there's really no clinically significant changes in your traditional coagulation testing results uh, in significant postpartum hemorrhage as well in those situations, Um, supporting really that it is actually quite uncommon to get coagulation changes. So, the next one, standard laboratory coagulation tests are outdated. I'll probably skip through this because um, this is uh, uh, bread and butter for us here at Eddy essentially. So INR, ABTT, fibrinogen tests were not designed to assess coagulation, coagulopathic bleeding, um, but viscoelastic devices uh, like your Roche or Teg machine allow uh, you to make clinical decisions far earlier in that picture and target specific coagulation uh, defects. Um, And there's lots of studies out there to support that, particularly in cardiac surgery and liver surgery, decreased red cell platelets, uh, FFP requirements and cost savings. There's only one observational study um, from the UK supporting a cost saving and decreased ICU stays with Rotem, um, but it is actually quite a difficult area for us to actually try and study uh, from that side of things. In terms of what device should you use, Um, We are commonly asked, should you use TEG or should you use Rotem? Um, It's nice to try and be device agnostic from the point of view that you don't be showing to support one device over another. So I say to people, do your own research and look into what other people are using and what protocols and what evidence is out there. Um, I think a key point that I always do make, though, is that In anesthesia particularly, we always have new monitors forced, or not necessarily forced upon us, but trying to be sold to us. Um, And this is actually something that I heard uh, when I was in the States um, a little while ago at a uh, a hemodynamic monitoring uh, conference. Uh, And essentially, no monitor that we will use will improve our patient outcomes unless it's attached to an intervention which is shown to improve patient outcomes. So we can use BIS monitoring, we can use capnography, all of those sorts of things, but unless we actually have an intervention associated with abnormalities that we see, uh, we're not going to improve our patient outcomes just by saying we're going to use pulse oximetry in all patients, we're going to use BIS in all patients. Unless we have protocols in place and interventions which are proven to improve outcomes, we're not actually going to improve our patient outcomes just by increasing our monitoring. So we've got to have the interventions associated with that monitoring to improve our outcomes. Hopefully that's not controversial to most people in this room. Cool. Yeah. How much does a monitor cost? The monitor itself is actually I think it's around twenty five to thirty thousand dollars. The consumables, I think we're paying it's about hundred and ten for the cartridge based system um, per test. Um, slightly cheaper to run them in the laboratory because they use individual reagents, um, but there's additional things associated with that. Basically, I think the Delta is the lab-based machine is actually more expensive to purchase than the Sigma, which we use in recovery. Uh, well, look in WA now; they there is reasonable saturation, but not necessarily in the smaller hospitals. Certainly, New South Wales has had a massive push. Um, So they've bought a truckload of machines for a lot of their smaller hospitals in that as well. Um, But I think it is coming to the smaller hospitals. But one of the things with Rotem in particular is that kind of everybody knows how to interpret a fibrinogen value in terms of it's normal or it's abnormal and we treat. Whereas with Rotem, there's a few more things that you need to learn to be able to implement it, which scares people, but it's actually pretty straightforward once you get the hang of it. Um, So again, um, sorry this talk was geared up for um, a few anaesthetists but primarily intensive care people, midwives and uh, obstetricians Um, So fibrinogen is a key biomarker Um, There's at least five studies now which support fibrinogen being a key biomarker for us to be monitoring uh, in postpartum hemorrhage situations Um, Importantly, it's the most abundant coagulation factor, the first coagulation factor to four to critical levels in major hemorrhage, Um, so there's good predictive value associated with your monitoring of uh, fibrinogen levels. Um, There is now work which is coming through looking at um, comparing standard laboratory Klaus fibrinogen levels to FibTem A5 or A10 values basically, Uh, and so this is work of Peter Collins and Rachel Collis. from Scotland, um, who have shown essentially that your FibTem A5 uh, is essentially just as good as your Klaus fibrinogen level uh, in terms of predicting the progression of postpartum hemorrhage. Um, This as well, um, some of this will be uh, of interest to you guys as well, but I'll just run through it essentially uh, just so that we're all on the same page. What we've got really good information for is uh, where we should be coming in to treat a low fibrinogen level Um, so when we've got a patient who's bleeding they've got an abnormal FibTem or an abnormal Klaus fibrinogen level we've got good evidence to say this is the trigger level that we should be treating this patient at. What we don't have um, is good evidence to say where we return that fibrinogen level to Um, and it may sound slightly counterintuitive but we just need to think about that for a minute and that we don't actually necessarily know what treatment target that we should be aiming for. So we have a treatment target in our algorithm here, um, but there's no good evidence to support the target level. Um, There's good evidence to support our trigger levels, but not as good evidence to support our target levels. And I think that just becomes important in terms of the fine-tuning for certain patients that we might have whose FibTem, say, might be 11 millimetres, FibTem A5, uh, and if that patient is bleeding, obviously it's a higher risk situation and even though it might be close to the target you might still want to give them fibrinogen in that situation but if they're not bleeding, um, even though they don't meet the target for the algorithm you can potentially argue that that's likely to be okay and not continue to treat them with fibrinogen at that point if they remain stable so just something to think about from that point of view um, In terms of a few things, uh, this was the OBS2 study um, sorry there's two things there's the Danish study uh, looking at fibrinogen concentrate plus the OPS2 study both designed in terms of research studies to give early fibrinogen supplementation to women suffering from a postpartum hemorrhage um, and essentially there's a few take home messages firstly your pre-delivery fibrinogen levels do not predict your risk of bleeding um, so if we did coagulation studies in all women presenting for labour and delivery, there's no predictive value of fibrinogen in that situation. Um, Giving fibrinogen concentrate to all significant postpartum haemorrhages, so greater than 1500 mL, so if you do no coagulation testing essentially and just give them all fibrinogen concentrate when they've reached a certain amount of haemorrhage is not associated with improved outcomes in terms of red cell utilisation, blood loss, things like that. uh, gives credence to the theory that you shouldn't be jumping in with fibrinogen in all bleeding patients. Essentially, you should be targeting who you're giving fibrinogen to. Uh, and good evidence, though, to support um, our treatment triggers here. So I wrote in 15 5 less than 12 millimetres um, appears to predict outcome improvement. So that looks like it's a pretty good uh, line in the sand basically for where we should be jumping in and starting to trigger things I haven't gone into those studies in detail because we didn't have enough time in the conference side of things Um, so again I think for here this is not controversial but for outside of this institution and lots of institutions that don't use Rotem this is actually quite controversial so FFP has no role in the early management um, of these bleeding women essentially um, so the main indication for FFP, if you actually look at its prescriber information from the Red Cross, is for the replacement of coagulation factors in a bleeding patient with coagulopathy, with the aim to keep your prothrombin time and APTT less than 1.5 times normal. Um, and interestingly, most of the coagulation factors which are going to influence your prothrombin time and APTT do not fall to a critical level. Um, even if you have a one blood volume blood loss, essentially. So you can lose your entire blood volume and still maintain your critical coagulation factor levels that are associated with a uh, normal prothombin time in ABTT, but not your fibrinogen, essentially. Um, so fibrinogen should be your priority early on, um, and you don't require early on your other coagulation factors in the majority of your hemorrhage situations. Um, and it's important... Because there's often a lot of misunderstanding about this, uh, even though FFP contains fibrinogen, it's a very low concentration source of fibrinogen. And essentially, if you're using fibrinogen, if you're using FFP to replace fibrinogen, you're not going to increase your patient's fibrinogen level because you just hemodilute them because of the concentration of it. Um, and there's a nice modelling study which has been done um, and published a few years ago, which shows this essentially that um, depending on essentially, and it makes perfect mathematical sense in that if you're infusing a product to increase the concentration of it in the circulation that you essentially never are able to get it above the concentration that you're actually infusing it at. So if you're wanting to elevate your fibrinogen you've got to be giving a high concentration solution which is fibrinogen concentrate or cryoprecipitate uh, because FFP is a low concentration solution, you're never going to be able to get it above the level of fibrinogen in your actual FFP, so you're just hemodiluting them further, basically. So take-home message again, never use FFP from a uh, for fibrinogen supplementation, essentially. Um, there's also good evidence to support the fact that you don't need FFP in these situations. Again, this is another sub-study from the OPS2 study, um, and so part of their treatment algorithm, depending on how they were... Uh, were randomised and uh, and studied in in the particular study, essentially called for fresh rose and plasma as part of their protocol, um, depending on what the changes were. And only 2% of their patient population uh, that they screened in that study needed FFP. So that probably fits with us. If uh, severe postpartum haemorrhage, I would imagine one in 50 to one in 100 would need one to two bags of FFP as part of their tidying up management at the end of things. Um, Roger and myself wrote an editorial on this which um, came out in February's iJoa about how to replace postpartum hemorrhage um, how to replace fibrinogen postpartum hemorrhage so if you want a copy of that just let us know we can send that through Um, but again take home message use cryo or use fibrinogen concentrate nothing really to suggest how are we going for time I can probably talk about it Um, nothing really to suggest a benefit of cryo versus fibrinogen concentrate Um, so nothing to suggest that one is better than the other. Potentially very, very low-level evidence to suggest cryo might actually be better than fibrinogen concentrate, partly because cryo's got some other coagulation factors which fibrinogen concentrate doesn't have. Um, So really it comes down to the urgency of the situation, Um, and so for us here there's really only a few cases per year where the situation is so urgent Um, given that we've got good access to cryoprecipitate, that we would want to use fibrinogen concentrate. Of more importance to hospitals that don't have 24-7 blood banks on site who need rapid access to fibrinogen, uh, this is certainly a much better way to go. So traditional fixed-ratio transfusion regimens are outdated, so um, we haven't had a fixed-ratio transfusion regimen here for six, seven years at least, I would have thought. Um, so they're outdated, but they may still be required. The reason they may still be required is you might not be working in a hospital which has access to point-of-care coagulation testing. Um, one of the key things that they do is they over-treat with fresh frozen plasma. Um, so we just halved essentially our FFP use over at St John's Subi, um, and we did that by decreasing our um, FFP that gets released in a critical bleed activation. Um, in that institution um, with no issues, basically, in terms of what was going on from things. Um, So you tend to significantly over-treat the majority of your patients when you use these fixed-ratio systems. Um, The future definitely is in targeted point-of-care coagulation testing like we've got here. Finally, just to finish off, um, tranexamic acid has benefits and is low-risk. So there's multiple systematic reviews and meta-analyses out there showing the potential Uh, benefits from a bleeding point of view with tranexamic acid. Um, Now, not dramatic results in terms of uh, red cells saved and transfusion savings, but certainly good evidence to say that tranexamic acid um, has benefits in our uh, bleeding obstetric patients. Uh, The women's study which came out, um, really completely different subgroup of patients to what we would generally look after here, as well as outcome measures. So, Death was a significant outcome measure in that study. We might have one case per year in Australia in terms of death from obstetric hemorrhage. The key take-home message for us from the women's study is the safety. So over 10,000 women receiving tranexamic acid who were pregnant, potentially at higher risk of venous thromboembolism, but no increase in the incidence of venous thromboembolic events in the tranexamic acid group. Um, So I think the meta-analysis gives us evidence of efficacy. The women's study gives us evidence of safety, uh, in terms of what we're doing with things. Um, now, I had 20 minutes to give this talk, so I've used, uh, gone just over that for here today. Um, so just to summarise, transfusion therapy, we still have to remember as much as we want to avoid it. It still saves lives, so it's still something that we need to do as part of our life-saving interventions, um, but it may also create significant problems when we don't use it appropriately. We do require more understanding of our pathophysiological mechanisms of obstetric-induced coagulopathy, uh, as well as what our treatment triggers and our endpoints are for hemostatic resuscitation, essentially. Uh, And traditional management strategies are likely to be over-treating and overexposing women to blood products. Okay. Thank you. Questions? We've finished on time. Thanks for listening, everyone. Please go to the iTunes menu and subscribe to the show if you like it. Write a review. This will also help us uh, get seen by other listeners on the iTunes menu. If you're also interested, please go to our website at www.opsandguinequirtcare.org where there will be lots of show notes and links to uh, interesting videos related to the topic that you've just listened to. See you again next time.